0: Hello, oh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is June, and I am from Big City, Oklahoma, and I am a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of al Gosh, it's a real pleasure to be here. You know, Rick and I had a deal, I said, I'll say something nice about you, you say something nice about me. And that's kind of how it works when you get to introduce each other like this. But It has been a pleasure up to this point <laughs> to be here. <laughs> The fun kind of dimmed a little when I had to stand up here. One nice thing about it, that light is so blooming bright and it's dark out there. I can't see if y'all are crying or laughing or getting up and leaving. I'll just, I may be speaking to an empty room by the time this is over, but if I knew I was going to have to look at a light like that, I'd have worn my cap <laughs> down home <laughs> where I come from. We all wear caps. Um, I want to thank, uh, I want to thank the committee that puts this thing on. Uh, this is absolutely phenomenal and, uh, I want to thank Bill for inviting me, and when he did, I was just awestruck. Because I've always heard about this conference, you know, and I know it's big, and I know it's good. And um, then I got to bring my daughter, the 12-step me into this program. And that was kind of special. And then I got up here, and here's Rick, and I know Rick, and then I knew David, who spoke last night. I enjoyed Mary Ann, and then there's John. <laughs> And John's going to speak to you all tonight, and John's been a real, real valuable part of my life and the lives of my children. And uh, Sandy, gosh, there's just so many, you know. I've enjoyed every speaker. I'm looking forward to hearing Heather. I want to thank the committee for the um, big fruit basket and some flowers. And I also want to remember to say thanks to the tapers. Ellie and the group of Gulf State Tapers, that's a job, and they come around to these things and they do this. We're for, for free. Let's give everybody that's in. And then there was Annette and she picked me up at the airplane and she said, how will I know you? And I said, don't worry, honey, we'll know each other. And sure enough, we stepped off that plane and there she stood. And I said, are you it? And she said, yeah. And so she got us here and the traffic was terrible, but she made it, she made it through. Anyway, it's fun to be here and I appreciate the opportunity and um, appreciate all of y'all being out here this afternoon. I grew up in a little farm town where I live today. Bixby, Oklahoma is just right down the road from Tulsa. I'm a member of Alnon Group at the Unanimity Club that Mary Ann spoke about last night. Traditions uh, Group is my home group. We meet on Wednesday night and I'm a committed member to that home group. I believe in sponsorship. I believe in being committed to your home group, and I believe in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't make any apologies for that. Like Rick said this morning, I was I was brought up on that book, and maybe I'll think to tell you all about that a little bit later. But uh, anyway, that's where I go to meeting tonight. We have a strong strong group, and um, that's where I go to meetings. That's my home group, and. And I, I, I uh, it's in Tulsa. I live out on the home farm. I, grew, I went back to my home place uh three years ago after my daddy passed away and my mother had to be moved out of the home. And my husband and I went back down there where we raised our kids and um, where we got married. And so we're back down there in that little old farm community. And that's where I grew up. And Bixby is a little farm town, and it's real, it was real small back when I was growing up. And uh, there were some people down there in Bixby that were real... Um, uh, prominent and real well thought of, uh, fluent. They were farmers. My daddy was a big farmer. My daddy was a very successful man. My daddy was prominent. My daddy was a um, kind of man that did business on a handshake. He taught us how to do things like don't take it if it don't belong to you, don't lie. We went. I'm a product of the Southern Baptist Church. Every time doors open, we were in that church house. My mama, I've got one sister six years younger than me. And my mama and daddy, we, we had to go to church three or four times a week. We went to church. My people were extremely strict. They didn't allow any card playing. They didn't allow any cussing. There wasn't any alcohol in that home. There wasn't any abuse in that home. There, my daddy was able to provide for my sister and my mother and me everything we needed and near everything we wanted. Uh, we were spoiled, I guess. We our Our name meant something in that town. And money bought things. My daddy taught me that from a very early age. Well, by the time I was seventeen years old, I was sick and tired of living like that. So I had decided to get—I decided to move on, and I did. I uh, I married into a family of people who lived just ten miles down the road from us, and they were real well known in our community too. But they were not real well known for the things like my people were well known for. They had a lawyer on retainer. They had a whiskey still out in their backyard, and they, and they had killings in their family. One of them killed a grandpa, and wound on Christmas, and wound up in the penitentiary down there in Oklahoma. and Lived his life out down there, and Lord have mercy, that was the most exciting thing in the world to move out there on that hill. Seventeen years old, little old girl that was naive and sheltered like I was, and we were all over the newspaper every time you opened up Tulsa the World. There was something in there about that family of people, and it was just exciting. And then nobody went to church, and they all fought like cats and dogs, and they smoked cigarettes, and the mama cussed, and they drank beer, and they did all these exciting things. And so, I and, and the one thing I remember more than anything in the world, the mother read True Confession magazines, and my mama didn't allow a True Confession magazine in our house, and I just sat with my nose in those True Confession magazines, reading those magazines all the time, loving all those terrible, tragic stories. And um, when I was married nine months and 11 days, I had my first baby, and that was Regina, and 17 months later, I had my second baby, and that was Pat. And 17 months later, I had Mike. And I lived in that marriage for eight years, and I did a lot of things in that marriage that I'm very ashamed of today. And if if I could do anything about straightening it out, I would. But I did a lot of things. For the first time, I ran those honky tonks with that man. I tried to become like they were, and I did a pretty good job of it. I left my little kids wherever I could find a place to leave them, so I could run them honky tonks with that man on the weekends, and he whipped me like a dirty dog. I'm telling you, that man would beat me up. It it didn't make any difference if I did anything or didn't do anything. He'd just give me a whipping, and he'd bruise me all up and beat me all up. And um, and I'd go home. I'd gather him up, and I'd go home, and I'd stay a week or two, and I'd go back. I don't know why I went back. I don't know. And there isn't a woman that takes abuse that knows why she took it because I just kept on going back because Lord knows I didn't have to live like that my mom and daddy was plenty able financially to take care of me and three little old kids and more than willing but i just kept going back and going back and going back and finally one day finally one day my daddy came to me we were having a family reunion at my grandma's and my daddy said to me june don't you want to come home and i said yeah daddy i'm ready and my daddy said i'll send a truck after you in the morning and he had an empty house across the road where i'm living today and my daddy said, I'll send a truck and the field hands, and he sent them out there the next morning on a Monday morning, and he loaded what little di- little bit I had left up in that old truck and-, and three little snotty-nosed kids and moved me down to Leonard. I really live in Leonard. Leonard's about 200 people. Well, I knew I- my goose was cooked when I got to Leonard because my daddy, first of all, he did not cotton to the way I'd been living. He was going to watch me like a hawk. He did not like the trashy life I'd had been living in those past eight years. He did not, he didn't want a woman to work. My daddy didn't believe in that. I had no education, no skills. I don't know what kind of job I could have got. So my daddy gave me my job. My job was stay home, take care of them kids. And he put money in the bank for me every week for that, for, for me staying home, taking care of those kids. I didn't have a car. I had to borrow their car if I wanted to go anywhere. And I knew it was over. I was 25 years old. I got three little kids. I don't have a job. I got mom and daddy watching after me. I'm going back to church in the Southern Baptist Church every time doors open I've got I can't read them proof confession magazines no more I had to sneak around and smoke I mean I couldn't do anything anymore cuz they're watching me like a hawk and besides all that shoot far down there in Leonard there about 200 people and all the men were old or took and I knew my chances were over there was no way I was going to get a man down there in Leonard but lord has way of putting things in our life <laughs> and he supplied me with a man and he moved him right over a section across from where we were living and he was absolutely the cutest thing you ever saw in your life. He's a little cowboy. And he rode horses for a living. He trained horses for a living. And he looked right in those Wranglers. He knew... <laughs> I'm going to tell y'all something. That ain't funny because that man is 71 years old today and he still looks good in those Wranglers. Coming or going don't make a bit of difference. <laughs> he is just too cute. And so, <laughs> so uh, Daddy didn't allow any cording. There wasn't going to be no Corton, and uh, so we didn't do it. He'd sneak over there once in a while, and, and and he'd hide his car, and he'd visit with me, and, and my little boys were riding horses all the time. Pat and Mike could ride over cross section and hang out with Carl. So what I did in order to get seen was haul water. I'd put the milk can in the trunk of the old car, and I'd go over and haul water from Carl's well. Well, everybody and Leonard was hauling water from our well, and Daddy come and asked me what was I doing, and I said, well, his water just makes better tea and coffee, Daddy. And so I just, <laughs> I'd just i haul the water, and I'd wave, and he'd wave, and we'd get to talk across the fence, and that was it. And so then one night, uh, he called me. He'd been up Tulsa in a wedding, and, um, and he called me up, and he said, I need to come down there and visit with you. And uh, I said, well, you have to hide your car. It was about 11 o'clock, and I said, hide your car around behind the house, and uh, I'll get up and wait on you. Well, Lord, have mercy. I didn't know what he wanted. And I got up out of bed and I put on my blue jeans and my old t-shirt. And unlike Mary Ann who talked about last night all her vanity, I, I, you can still tell that it, it, it didn't much me. And so my hair was all wrapped up in the, them, uh, pink foam curlers. And I had, and I took one of them old, uh, um, them old hairnet things and put it on my head and got up and waited. And uh, I sat down on the couch and he stood over there in front of the fire and, uh, and he said, um, I've come over here to ask you if you'll marry me. And I said, yeah. And I, mean, <laughs> I didn't even think. I mean, I just said, yeah, I was never tickled in all my life. And uh, so I said, well, you're going to have to go ask Daddy. And he said, well, I will. So he went up there and asked my Daddy. And, and he told my Daddy. He said, I'm going to marry June and those kids. I love those kids. And I love that woman. And I, and I want to marry her. And we never had a date. And we got married. And we got married in August 1960. And... Um, this, uh, what is it, this coming up August, we'll be married 41 years. I mean, I don't recommend that to a single solitary soul that's sitting out there. I mean, but <laughs> I'm going to tell you, sometimes that marriage was going downhill. And <laughs> But anyway, we hung in there. We made it. And uh, we got married, and I was tickled to death. I just went around grinning like a chess cat all the time and, and just thinking how lucky I was to have that man. And and about two years after we got married, well, he adopted my three kids. And so when we got married, we had—he had two kids, uh, and I had three. And so we had two, five, and one, six, and one, seven. And um, we got married. And and the little one of his little girls moved in with us, made her home with us, and lived with us till she went away to college. And and Carl adopted my three little kids, and we all absolutely adored each other. My children adore that man today, and. And they adored him then, and he was in love with them. And and there was no alcohol in that home. And my husband didn't drink then; he didn't didn't drink today. There was no. Um, I started saying there wasn't any cussing, but I but he was bad. I mean, he cussed like sailor and and threw fits every once in a while because we had to work hard and the, and you got a whole bunch of kids like that. And Lord have mercy, we bought a little farm and we're trying to make a living farming and 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 teaching our kids our, the values that had been taught to us. And we went back to the roots of our raising. We started taking our children back to church, and we. We worked hard and we tried to teach them the things that, that you know that that you teach kids when you're trying to do right. And we started out on a lot of hopes and dreams, never one time realizing that a disease called alcoholism would come into our home and 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 rupture it. And so we bought this little old farm and we moved down there. And I am just absolutely eat up with pride. I am so proud of myself for snaring that good man and that cute man and. And he's good to my kids, and they and they love him, and I am just absolutely so proud of myself. So I run up to the Bixby Bulletin. That's the newspaper up in our town. And I went up there every week, and I wrote an article. Because my kids, if they went to a horse show, they won. If they went to a pig show, they won. If they went to whatever they went to, they won. And so I was always up there at the newspaper writing these articles and telling what my kid won. And I would always say, that is Regina Christensen, daughter of Carl and June Christensen, because see, just 10 miles down the road. There's this natural family that gave my kids away. There's this natural family that treated me tacky. And they're reading that newspaper and I'm a gigging them every chance I get with that one little line. Daughter of Carl and June Christensen. And so that's how I operated. Well, Regina was the first one to throw a shoe and, and she went to a party up Bixby one night. And, um, <laughs> telephone rang. And now I, I'll back up a little bit and say that there had been some things happening up the schoolhouse. Pat and Mike were always in tr- some kind of trouble up the schoolhouse. And um, and and I I I didn't want to tell Carl. I, I never did tell my kids to lie. I didn't just come right out and say let's go lie about this. I just say maybe we ought not tell your daddy. And they well they didn't want to tell him. <laughs> so we didn't tell him a lot of stuff. And and uh, so then I would kind of get in between them and I'd kind of make up a little stretch it a little bit, make it a little bit better so that he really wouldn't know what was really going on at the schoolhouse. There was always they were getting kicked out of school. There was stuff going on. We had an airplane. Pat soloed when he was sixteen. I had that put in the newspaper too and he flew that airplane, got his pilot's license and and so then he'd come in every afternoon and he'd get in that airplane and take off and, and I and I said, Where are you going? And he said, I'm going out here at the airport to do a little practice. And well shoot far, they called me from school and told me he's coming up there at the schoolhouse and he's loading up kids and he's taking them riding. And uh, so I had to put a stop to that and I had I sure couldn't tell Carl. So there was that kind of stuff that was going on. And um, so there was Regina. She went to that party and somebody called. And and Carl got to the phone before I could. And I'm gonna tell you, I could run a race getting to that telephone because I knew there wasn't gonna be any good news. Anytime one of them kids is out somewhere, I guarded that phone like a hawk. And uh, but Carl beat me to it, and uh, so he was mad, and I'll get out because she said, "Lady, said you better come up here and get her. She's up here in Bigsby, and she's drunk." And shoot, he, he was so mad, he slung gravel for two mile, that's how far it is to Leonard. And, and, and he got in that old pickup and off he went and he got her and he brought her home and he slung her down in an old rocking chair and I can see it just as plain as I can, if I could see y'all, like and, <laughs> <laughs> you're out there. And that old chair flopped back and forth and her little old head flopped back and forth and Carl called her a tramp. And something happened to me that night that I didn't know was possible for me to feel for that man. And it set up deep down in my belly, and it grew and it grew and it grew as the years went by and it, until it just exploded, and, and I was eat up with resentment and all that kind of stuff. And I began to try to find somebody to blame for the things that were beginning to go wrong in my family, and I decided it was him. And I decided that it was if he was their real daddy, he wouldn't have talked to her like that. And if he was there, really, Daddy, he wouldn't say things like that to Pat and Mike. And I began to blame that man where there was no measure of blame. And I heard Mary talk about that last night, how she had to find somebody to blame. And it was so important for me to find somebody to blame, because it surely couldn't be my kids. And I knew it couldn't be me. And so I knew that it had to be him. See, when I lived with their, their natural daddy, I called him low-life, lily-livered, yellow-bellied, everything under the sun. But these were my kids that were beginning to do stuff, and I wasn't about to plaster that kind of a name on them. And so Regina moved, we, year, time went by, and, and it had come time to send her off to college, and we sent her off up to a little college north of Tulsa. And she'd come home in the summer of 1971 and uh, moved into an apartment up Tulsa. And along about 2 o'clock in the morning, one morning in August 1971, the phone rang, and it was the law. And they told us that they had arrested Regina, and they had, were holding her in Tulsa County Jail on a drug charge, and at five o'clock that morning, they knocked on my door, and they picked up my boy Pat, and they had him up there in the courthouse, locked up in that jailhouse in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on a drug charge. And that stinking Bixby Bulletin came out, and that Bixby Bulletin said, "Pat and Regina Christensen, son and daughter of Carl and June Christensen,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: have been arrested and are being held in Tulsa County Jail on a drug charge." And I'm going to tell you something: in the summer of 1961, a little farm community like Bixby, Oklahoma. We were the first family that happened to, and we were not the family that kind of stuff was supposed to happen to, because we had stood up here in Washington, D.C., and received an award that said we were Farm Family of the Year. There was a lot of things going on in my home along about that time, and it was like Mary Ann was talking about it last night, and others have talked about it in front of me, I think Rick mentioned it. It wasn't so much what was happening, it's what I made you think was going on, and I knew how to do that. We drove the right kind of car. We wore the right kind of clothes. We went to the right kind of places with the right kind of people and we looked good. And I didn't want anybody to know what was really going on inside that house. By that time, things were beginning to happen. And Carl and I hung our head in shame and we didn't know what in the world to do. But I had an ace in the hole. My daddy, my daddy could fix anything with enough money. And we went up and got my mom and daddy and we told them what had happened to their little, their little granddaughter and little grandson. They had been so instrumental in helping me raise up those children, and it broke their heart. And we got in the car, and we went to Tulsa, home to the courthouse, and my daddy told me he'd fix it. I'll fix it. I'll get this took care of. Don't you worry. And I told Carl how to act. And Carl did not mind me. I said, now, Carl, you go up there, and don't you act this way, and don't you act that way, and don't you say this, and don't you say that, because I didn't want Mom and Daddy to act know how he acted. And my husband didn't mind me that day, and he don't mind me when I left home Friday. He still don't mind me. <laughs> and Lord knows I tried. But, <laughs> but anyway, we got those kids out of that jam, and, and Carl and I had bought a ranch down in uh, Oatmogie, Oklahoma, Oatmogie County, down about 20 miles south where we live today. And we bought the ranch purely to speculate on. It's a pretty good-sized place. And we moved down there on that ranch and, and took the only kid that was left at home because we sent... Pat and Sammy, that was Carl's little girl, and Regina back off to college in the fall of the year. And, and by October we were moved because we couldn't look at the people in that little town anymore. We moved down there on that ranch and we got one kid left and that's Mike. And uh, things began to go sour and they began to go sour. It seemed like pretty fast or else I, I don't know what. It just seemed like it all crashed in on me. And I'm going to tell you people one thing. If you think that keeping up with one drunk is something, you try three of them at the same time. And it is a job. I got busy. I got extremely busy trying to keep up with all those drunk kids because they all started getting drunk and they all started drugging. And they all started doing all these things. Regina became a nurse and pretty soon she wasn't even able to do that. And she got a job slinging drinks behind a bar and pretty soon she couldn't even do that. And Pat and Mike, Lord, I don't even know. I can't even remember what became of them. They just kind of, <laughs> it was just awful. And the, and the holidays would come around and I'd rather seen a pastel of snakes coming after me as know it was going to be Christmas because it just got terrible. I mean, I'm liable to have to get up and go hunt those kids up. And I had to go find them. I had to clean them up. I had to make them promise me. And I had a way of doing that. I kept a stash of money in my old pocketbook. And every time I'd have to go get one of my kids out of a jam or go do some pay a bad check or buy a mirror out of a beer joint that Mike had shot out or go get one of them out of jail or pay their rent or whatever I had to do, I took that money in one hand and my finger in their face and I said... You promised me that you won't go back in that old beer joint. I'll give you this money I Promise me. And they had promised me. <laughs> they had promised me anything I asked them to. And what I know about that today is my kids did not set out with the intent to do harm. And they did not set out with the intent to lie. It was the disease that had them in their grips right then. Because I know that because I know that I did not set out to become the kind of mother I became. Because standing before you today is a mother that's capable of killing a kid. And I come gum near close to killing three of them. Trying to love them to death and pay their way. Trying to figure out a way. Figure out something to do for them that would make life a little bit easier. Didn't want to look at them in jail. Didn't want to hear. And don't think for one minute this disease doesn't get a hold of everybody. Hey, I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. Rick talked about that this morning. You don't have to drink to get this disease. I had it full blown, and I had not a clue. I tried drinking, and I but I did everything. I did cold stone sober, and it was just like an idiot. I mean, if you could have watched me operate back in those days, you would have looked at me and you would have said, "Somewhere there's a village being denied as idiot because that's." <laughs> it was absolutely crazy. And the holidays, when Christmas would come, I had to go find. Now, Regina, she always showed up looking pretty good. I used to think she smelled funny, but I just kind of put that back. And then another, I think she smells like she's been drinking, but she's here. And she'd be dressed up real cute. She's just cute as a bug. and She's sitting out here with me today. And and so she'd always come up. She'd always have little presents of some sort or other. But Lord, Pat and Mike, you forget about them. I had to go find them. And I had to buy them some new clothes and straighten them up because, see, it was important how they looked. I had to get them to looking good. Now, I bought them good clothes all the time. I bought my boys good hats and good jackets and good wranglers and high dollar boots and people stole those things off those boys right and left because I would say to them, well, what happened to that bunch of stuff I bought you the other day? Well, they'd look me straight in the face and say, well, we don't know, somebody stole it. Here we are in all these old rags." So I'd go clean them up, make them promise me that they'd be there on Christmas day and then I'd say, don't worry about the present, I'll get the presents." Poor suffering me, as Rick said this morning, I'll go do your Christmas shopping. And so then I would become their personal shopper and I would go out and I would buy the present for their daddy and their grandma and their grandpa. And sometimes I'd even buy one for myself and put their name on it. I mean, <laughs> depending on who I wanted to impress that Christmas. And so I, uh, I'd i buy usually a book, and I'd, and I'd disguise my handwriting, and I'd write in that book, To Daddy with Whole Lots of Love from Pat and Mike. And then what I had to do was take up my post and wait and watch for Pat and Mike to come down that road. We lived right up in the middle of the section, and one road in, one road out. And I had to watch for Pat and Mike to come up that road. Because when I saw him coming, I had to go out and inspect them and kind of spit-shine them a little bit because it, it just invariably happened. Regina knows it's the truth. Mike, God, he would always have a black eye or a cut face or just something wrong with him. And I'd have to go out and get all the questions, and we'd make up what we were going to say about this or that. And I'd straighten them all up, you know, straighten them. And then I'd tell them what I bought everybody so they wouldn't look like blooming idiots when they opened the present. And then I'd go in the house, and I'd watch Carl. And I'd watch Carl, and my husband is not a mental midget, not by any stretch of the imagination. And my husband would open that book, and he would look at it, and a look of disgust would come on that man's face, and he'd slam that book, and he wouldn't even say thank you. And I'd look at that man, and I'd say to myself, in my heart, you ruined my Christmas one more time, Carl. It was always that poor man's fault, always Carl's fault. No matter what was going on, he would not mind me. He would not act like I wanted him to. Now, I want to tell you all something. Me and Carl run steers for a living. We run about 1,500 head of steers on that ranch. In different places we leased, and we run. We we got up and rode horses every day. My husband sold and trained uh, cutting horses and good quarter horses. We get up there every morning. We would saddle those horses and tie them up around that corral, and we'd ride those pastures and bring in the sick cattle. And we'd vaccinate. We'd receive cattle. We'd ship cattle. We did all that stuff, and we did it side by side, partners. But don't talk about a kid, because we couldn't discuss a kid, because Carl saw it like it was, and I couldn't look. I could not look. You know, Clancy talks about alcoholism, the disease of perception. I'm going to tell you something. Alanonism is also, in my case, a disease of perception. John talks about there's no such thing as denial, it's delusional. I was delusional. I was living in a disease of perception that I could make things happen like I wanted them to happen, and I would not listen to the truth. And my husband would look at me, and he'd say to me, they're drinking and they're drugging, and they cannot come on this place. And not only would he say that to me, He'd step right out in the middle of that road if he'd see Pat and Mike coming, and he'd, he'd point his finger at them boys, and he'd say, you get the hell off my place
1: because you're not
0: coming on this place looking like that and acting like that. Well, we had a code. We'd go, They'd go down the road and hide out a little ways down there behind a clump of trees. They'd hide whatever they was driving, and I'd wait a little while, and I'd go down the road, go to the store or whatever, and I'd meet up with them down there because I knew what they needed. They needed a little money. And I'd give them the money they had to have, and I'd give them the speech one more time, and make them promise me one more time that they wouldn't do this and they wouldn't do that. And um, and that's how we operate. Lord have mercy, how crazy can you get? I decided that it was time that I could get the army to straighten Pat out, so I got uh, busy and talked him into joining up the army, and um, they sent him off to Germany. And he, but he didn't do very good over there, you know. He uh, they sent him back. Uh, they said. <laughs> And they sent him back with a letter that said he had a heroin addiction and he'd been hospitalized over there. And heaven's sakes, I didn't know what I was going to do because not only is my husband an old redneck farmer, but but I'm going to tell you right now, he's an ex-Marine and he don't talk into that kind of stuff. And, and I got out on my knees and I began to pray to the God of my childhood. Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do that. You know, Lord, if you won't punish me no more for that way I lived those eight years, I'll straighten up and I'll do it like this. You just give me this, just give me what I want. You know, I made bargains with God. And what I know about that today is that prayer didn't go any higher than this ceiling, if it even got that high. And so I, I got Pat, I knew he was coming home and, and I, I didn't want the thunderation I was going to do. it. so I, I got this notion. I mean, I thought a lot and I got this notion that I'd go up to my doctor who was a good friend of ours. Turned out later he was an alcoholic, like somebody, the speaker before me was talking about his doctor and, and, uh, turn out he, he belonged with y'all. And, and, but I went up there and told him, that there was something bad wrong with me, and, and I need him to put me in the hospital. And, and he'd say to me, June, he came down to my house all the time, and he'd been doctoring Mike where Mike had shot himself in the leg in a drunken stupor, and, and Tom knew. And, and Tom would say to me, June, why don't you tell me what's going on down at your house? And I'd look squarely at him, and I'd say, nothing, everything's just fine. Well, how's the kids? Oh, they're fine. I'd make up where they were, what they were doing. I just made stuff up. I just lied like a dog. And, uh, and, I, and so I said, but Tom, I need to, I just need to go to the hospital. I'm really sick. Well, Lord knows I was. I mean, I had, by that time, I'd had two back surgeries, and I'd had a big old ulcer, and taken heart medicine, and weighed about 105, and looked pitiful, and it was just awful. And um, so I said, but here's what I need. I need to go to the hospital on this day, and I only need to stay eight days, Tom, and you can run tests on me, because see, I knew Pat was going to come home, he's only going to be home a few days, and while he was, uh, and I knew that him and his daddy wouldn't come up here and act ugly uh, over, over the bed of a dying woman, and I, and I, I knew I'd be safe. If I could get up there in that hospital, and so uh, so Tom put me up there, and, and uh, they run all those tests, and, and he couldn't find anything wrong with me, and, and uh, <laughs> sent me home. And but while I was up there, I uh, I got busy, and um, and I got had a job out in uh, Calip- uh Calipatria, California. There was a, a man out there I knew that owed me a favor, and um, so I called him up, and I got had a, a job, and and he did pretty good. So I, I sent Mike, and um, shoot, they they sent him home, you know, sent him home, and. Didn't, didn't keep him very long, and it, and while Pat was out there, he got a wife, and uh, so now I got one more thing I got to worry about. I got to be responsible for the wife, and uh, and so um, yeah, but everywhere I sent them, they always sent them back. Army sent them back, job sent them back, wife sent them back. No, everybody sent them back. Husbands sent them back. Nobody kept them, and, uh, and I was just thinking, thinking, thinking. You know, how could I keep them out of my hair? Because I couldn't stand to look either. I couldn't stand to look. I was always trying to separate myself. Mike called me up one day, and he said, Mom, I'm going to kill myself. And, and I said, Oh, just wait till I get there. Just wait. I can get there, and I know I can fix it. And uh, So I got my money, and I went up there to an old house up there on 21st and Lewis. It's not there anymore, and, uh, and there he was, surrounded with guns and uh, threatening to shoot himself. And, uh, and I bargained with that boy for his life, and I uh, asked him how much would it take, and, and he priced it, and I paid him. And I put him in an old pickup and sent him off far away. And go high up where I didn't have to look at him anymore. And he got up there and he's drinking and he's drugging in progress, and it got worse. And Regina's and Pat's drinking and drugging in progress, and it got worse. And Pat had a little girl, and she's the apple of my eye, and she's the only grandchild I have, and she's 22 years old today. And and she was five, four or five years old before her daddy sobered up. And um, and I took full responsibility for that family. And, and in 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 order for me to keep that little wife where I wanted her to be. Uh, and keep her mouth shut. I bought her things, and uh, I bought her furniture. I bought her clothes. I bought her anything she wanted, and uh, and that's how I operated. And so Mike was up there in Ohio, and um, and things were bad. And once in a while, my daddy and my mama would go up there, and and they would come home, and they would tell that Mike wasn't acting right, and um, he looked terrible, and and uh, he had got married, and was living up there, and in, in, uh, Pat and Regina were running amok in my life and things were crazy and me and Carl by that time were living almost like strangers in that house you know we were doing things to each other that um, that marriages should not survive and outside these rooms and these two programs mine wouldn't have. and me and Carl were beginning to live like strangers you know and we were beginning to um, pass each other in the hall and it was beginning to be like a nothingness in that house and we didn't talk about alcohol or drugs anymore, because Carl knew he was fighting a losing battle, trying to talk sense to me. And one night that phone rang, and um, and it was Mike. And Mike said to me, Mama, guess what? And he sounded good, you know. And he said, Mama, there's a man come up here to see me today, and he said, I've been down on my knees, and the Lord has saved my soul, and the Lord has called me to preach, now I'm an old product of the Southern Baptist and we believe in that. And Mike had told me when he was 15 years old that he felt a real strong calling from God to be a preacher. And Mike said, I just told God if he wanted a preacher in our bunch, he could get Pat. I wasn't going to be the preacher in our bunch. But Mike said to me, Mama, I'm going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a preacher. And I said to him, you can't do that. But see, first of all, it wasn't my idea. And I said to him, you can't do that. Because I said you didn't even graduate out of high school. Mike was standing in the jailhouse up in Oklahoma, the day his class graduated. And Mike, Mike get put in jail all the time. And it, one time he got his dog put in there with him, old Buddy John, that used. To, and Carl went and got the dog, but he wouldn't get the kid. And uh, so I said, you can't get, you can't be a preacher. But Mike said, oh yeah. And so he went up to that little old Bible college in Marietta, Ohio, and he told them about his life. And he cleaned himself up, and he took tests that was necessary, and they let him into that school. And I sent the money up there for that kid to go to school on for about two years. And he called me up one day, and he told me he wanted to go to Belfast over in Northern Ireland and study with Dr. Ian Paisley. And Dr. Bob Jones out of Greenville, South Carolina, North Carolina, took Mike, and and they went over there. And they went to Northern Ireland in Belfast, and he stayed over there, and he studied in that country for about a year and a half, maybe two years. And he preached all over that country, and Mike was a good preacher and he went all over the country preaching in Scotland and in Ireland, and he marched in the protests and everything that there was to do, and, he, and he'd and tell me how much money he needed, and I sent that money to him to go over there on and stay over there on for that two years. And he'd come out there, and he wanted to go down to Dr. Bob Jones College down there in Greenville, South Carolina, and and I sent the money in. By that time, he had a wife, and I sent the money for him to go on and live on and stay on until he graduated out of that school down there with his degree. And I never one time, uh, never one time, did it ever enter my mind to say, God, is this your will for his life? See, it didn't matter to me. I didn't ask Carl for the money. I took it. And I didn't ask God if it was his will. It was my will and it was that kid's will. And I have steamrolled over everybody between here and Tulsa to got it done. And I got it done. And people would come up to me and they'd say, oh, June, aren't you proud? And I'd say, yes, 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 I'm so proud. I'm so proud because I'd rear back and I'd say to myself, Now, there's one of them that's smart enough to listen to his mama when she had her finger in his face. There's one kid that listened to his mama, and look at him. He's the preacher boy. So I got one kid preaching and two kids drunk. Preacher don't like the drunk kids. Drunk kids don't like the preacher kids. Carl can't understand any of us, and it didn't get a whole lot better. (laughs) Me and Carl sold that ranch, and we moved up closer to Tulsa on a little small uh, five-acre place. And we were building a horse barn, put our horses in. And it was one Sunday afternoon in March, and I remember hearing that spray plane. My Pat was flying spray planes by that time. And we heard that thing coming before you could see it, and we stepped out of that barn. And I I never will forget the longest day I lived, the look on my husband's face. When he looked up and he said, Lord, have mercy, June, that boy's drunk, and he's going to kill himself in that thing because he just barely cleared the fence line. And he said he's going to kill himself. And I remember how, in all my pride and arrogance, I threw my head back, and I looked at my husband, and I said, I'd like to know how you know he's drunk, he's up there, and you're down here now, how do you know? And he said, oh, June, why don't you get your head out of the sand? I've watched that boy fly too many times. He's drunk, and he's going to kill himself in that plane. We went on home down at that ranch we were living still down there. Went on back home that night on Sunday night, and about nine o'clock, that phone rang, and it was Pat. And he said to me, Mama, I need some help. Well, he called the right fella because, I mean, I was always setting on ready with help. Now, Regina, she had married into a family of people by that time up there in, in Tulsa, and the daddy had had been drunk for years, and he had sobered up in something called ANA. And I heard about that, and I knew he had gone up there to a treatment center at St. John's in Tulsa, so I had all that information, see. So Pat said to me, I need help, and I said, I'll help you, I'm ready. And I said, don't, his wife had kicked him out, and I said, you go on down to your grandpa's tonight, and you stay with him, and I'll get you tomorrow. So I got my husband. I remember hanging up the phone, and Carl looked at me and said, "What was that about?" And I said, "Nothing. It was nothing. I wouldn't tell. I couldn't. We couldn't talk about it." And so next day, I go down to get Pat, and he doesn't look good enough to join an A and A. And so I knew I had to go straighten him up and clean him up and get him some decent-looking clothes on. And then I called his wife up, and I told her to get up and get dressed up and get the best dress she had on. That we were going to take Patrick Lewis up there to Tulsa and put him in a treatment center, and he was going to join up with A and A, and we were going to get his life straightened out. So then we got him in, I got him cleaned up and I got him in the car and we started down the road and I decided he didn't look very good. So I decided to get his hair cut. His hair was kind of long. So I decided we need to get his hair cut and real short, you know, and fix him up good. So she stood at the back door. I stood at the front door and we watched him. We guarded it while they cut his hair. And then I got him in the car and I got her and him sitting there. And I said, now here's what I want you to say when you get in there. I want you to go in there and I want you to tell them about how you are farm family of the year kid. And I want you to tell them about how your grandpa has got lots of money down there in that Leonard Bottom at Bixby, and how your mom and daddy live on this great old big ranch out here in Okmulgee County, and and you just tell them you don't know what happened, but somehow or other you got to drinking, and you need a little help. And then I decided they won't get that right if I send them in there by their self, so I just marched in there with them. And I, I just went right in there with them, and I stood up there with that old Indian counselor, old Sam Regina. And I looked him square in the face, and I began to tell Sam all about us. And Sam let me ramble on for about five minutes, and Sam dismissed me and told me I did not need to come back. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so I went home, and um, and I was tickled to death that I had Pat up there, and uh, and I didn't tell Carl that he could go visit, because Lord, I didn't want him to go up there and visit. I was afraid they'd get up there and they'd say something, and Pat'd say something, or Carl'd say something, and and the sparks would fly, and the stuff'd hit the pan, and and then the, people would know how we really were, and I didn't want those people up there to know how we really were, and so I just didn't. I just kept that part quiet. And uh, but I'll tell you something. Pat went up to that treatment center, and I'm gonna tell you something. It's just like it talks about in the chapter, the family afterwards in the big book. His pick struck gold, and so did mine, because he fell in with a group of people up there that told him about. He needed to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And he needed to go to an old tough bunch out there in Westside Tulsa that would straighten him out. And and they gave him an old sponsor, and the old man's name was Leo. And Leo had been sober 30-some years. And Leo was not one bit impressed that Pat was farm family of the year kid. And he was not one bit impressed that Pat had been off to college or that he could fly an airplane or that his granddaddy had some money and his mom and daddy lived down there on a big old ranch and rode good horses. That didn't impress Leo. And Leo told Pat real quick, Boy, that don't impress me a bit, but I'll tell you one thing, boy. I've not done any of those things, and I've not had any of that kind of privilege, but I'll tell you what I do know. I know how to stay sober one day at a time, and you do what I tell you to do, and you stay green and grow. And one of these days, you can be sober like me and stay sober for a long time. And on the 29th day of March this past year, my boy celebrated 17 years of sobriety. Thank you, Alcoholics Anonymous. I went up there to see Pat and I told him I went to get Regina, and Regina, God love her, she suffered with the virus all the time in those days. She always had the virus. No matter where we went, she had the virus. And I went to get her that day, and there she laid on the bed all cuddled up in her, and she had that virus again. And I gave her some money to fix the virus, you know, get her some pepto Bismol or something like that, some 7-Up. And then I left and I told her brother, I said, I went to get Regina, but God, Pat, she's got that virus again, and you know how that is, she can't do nothing when she gets that virus, and he looked at me and he said, Mama, do you not know what's wrong with her? And I said, well, yeah, it's something wrong with her stomach. She's got that virus, and I gave her some money, and she's going to go get her some Pepto-Bismol and go to the doctor. And And he said, Mama, she has strung out on drugs, and she's drinking, and she needs to be right up here with me. And I turned on that boy just like a rattlesnake, just like I had his daddy. I couldn't listen to it, not even coming from him. And it wasn't very long after that till they fished that little old girl out of the swimming pool unconscious. And she landed up there in that very same treatment center That Patrick Lewis landed in, and she landed out there with them old tough people of the South Side, in that up there in Tulsa, and she landed with that same kind of old tough, hard-nosed sobriety that was in Tulsa, and she listened to them, and she did what they told her to do, and on and on the ninth day of December, she's going to pick up a seventeen-year chip, not for one thing their mama said, but because what you all said and did for my kids. My kids survived me, and it was not easy. They are happy. God knows it wasn't easy because I was always right in there, and I'm going to tell you the first thing those two kids did when they come out of that treatment center and got a little AA under their belt. They came to me, and they brought me a book called The Big Book, and they told me I need to read that book, and I said I'd be happy to because they told me up there in that treatment center my kids suffered from a disease, and I was glad to hear it. I was glad to hear there was something like that wrong, that they wasn't low-life, lily-livered, no account. And that's what I thought drunks were. And so they gave me that book, and they told me to read it. And I'll tell you how I read that book. I read in there in that book, and it it talked about our inability to be honest. And I said to myself, well, Lord, that's the problem. Pat and Mike and Regina, they lie all the time. So I wrote their name out. I wrote their name right out there in that margin. And then I, I got a little further on down in that book, and it said... Uh, he is in full flight from reality or else is mentally defective, and that described old Carl to a T, and I wrote his name right out there in that book. <laughs> on and on I went. Lack of power is my dilemma. That's Carl. He's trying to run the show. If he had listened to me, he'd be... I did not see anything but them in that book. So then they give me about time to read that book and hopefully digest a little of it, which I did not. And uh, then they came and sat down and had a heart-to-heart talk with me, as my little daughter Regina likes to call her to come to Jesus meeting Mama. And um, and they said to me, Mama, we think uh, we think that you are to go to Al-Anon. And I never was so shocked in all my life. And I looked at them and I said, You have got to be kidding! I mean, you must have forgot. <laughs> I mean, I am the one that paid your rent. I am the one that bought your vehicles. I am the one that paid the insurance on your vehicle, I got you out of jail. I bought your clothes. I took care of your wife and kid. I did all these things, and you want me? To go to Al Anon? Well, I think you're the most ungrateful two little snot nosed kids I ever saw. Why why don't you march out there at that barn and tell your daddy to go to Al Anon? He's the one that acted like the horses rear end, it wasn't me. And they looked at me and they said, No, nah, mama, it's you. <laughs> and I said, I don't think so. And they said to me, Mama, there's a meeting down there in Oatmulgee. I didn't live about 20 minutes from Oatmulgee. And there's a woman down there named Ramona. Now, you need to go down there. Ramona will help you. Well, I knew Ramona and Bob. Me and Carl had known Ramona and Bob for a long, long time. She would not have anything she could help me with, I didn't think. So I said, no, I don't believe I will. So time rocked by and rocked by. And my kids began to bring sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous to my home. And I began to see a different way of life. I began to see something I had not seen. I had been raised around sober people. But I was watching something here. And so then one day, the phone rang. It was three years went by. And And I picked up the phone, and I called up in Marietta, Ohio, where my boy was preaching all over the country up there. And I called up there to see how he was doing. And the preacher said to me, June, I hate to have to tell you, but Mike is drunk, and he's been drunk for about two weeks. And he's laying drunk out there to his house. And I thought I'd die. And before, that was on a Saturday, and I knew I couldn't tell that to nobody. And on a Sunday morning, my daddy came to my house to drink coffee and eat donuts like he not, almost always did before we went to church. And as my daddy walked in, I passed out. I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe. And it scared my daddy to death. And he called Regina, and he called Pat. By that time, Pat's down in Arkansas. And he called Pat, and he said, You all better come up here at the hospital. I think your mama's a dying. There's something bad wrong with her. And I laid up in that hospital all day long and they worked on me all day long. And by the end of the day, I could breathe and I could talk a little bit and they didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew what was wrong with me. And they sent me home. And I got back there in my bedroom and I, and I closed the door and my Pat come back there and sat down on that bed beside me. And he said, Mama, you won't tell me what this is all about? And I just shook my head, no. And he said, it's Mike, ain't it, Mama? And I shook my head, yeah. He's drunk, isn't he, Mama? Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. And he said, I'll go get him. And he got in the car and he went down the hill to my sister's house. It was about a quarter mile away. And he got the money off my sister to get an airplane ticket and get on the airplane the next morning and fly up to Columbus, Ohio. And he called the preachers and there was a whole bunch of them up here in that church. And he said to them, I'm a a recovering member of Alcoholics Anonymous and I believe in the concept of disease of alcoholism and I'm coming after my brother and if y'all don't want to help me, don't get in my way because I'm going to get him. And they helped him. They came, pick Pat up in Columbus, they drove a couple of hours down to Marietta, and they got Mike. And they took him up to an old treatment center up there in Columbus, Ohio, where Mike only stayed a couple of weeks, and he came out there and he was drunk again. And so his little wife, he had that little wife, Kathy, by that time, and Kathy called me and she said, maybe June, if we could come home. And so I, I sent him a plane ticket, and they got on the plane, and they came home for a couple of weeks. And Regina and Pat, they threatened the poor old thing with his life if he drank while he was there. And somehow he managed. And the day arrived that I could take that kid and send him one more time where I didn't have to look. And I could put him on that airplane and send him far away from me. And I put him on the plane, him and his little wife. And I backed up against the wall in in the airport there at Tulsa. And And I slid down that wall and I sat down on the floor with my head on my knees and I sobbed like I'd put a corpse on that plane because somehow or other I knew. I knew in my heart that the gig was up. I didn't quit trying. But somehow or other in my heart, that still small voice told me that my daddy didn't have enough money and I couldn't think hard enough to fix my boy. I didn't quit trying for a long, long time. And I heard little feet coming down the corridor of that airport, and it was Regina. And she sat down there with me that day, and she began to share with me the things you all had taught her. And see, mamas are supposed to teach their kids. But here stands a mama that two little sober kids took by the hand and began to lead me on this journey. And that little girl sat with me that day for some two hours or more. And she told me the things you all had told her. And she said, this is where you're going to be ready to surrender, mama. And this is where you're going to learn about release. And this is where you're going to be ready to go to Al-Anon. And on Tuesday night, the last Tuesday night in August 1987, I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting down in Oatmogie. And I went in there for two reasons only. That was to get a kid sober and make a man mine. And I knew there wasn't anything wrong with me, and if I could get those two things done, I had it made. Somehow I knew that I had it made if they would tell me how to do that. And I got down there that night, and they showed me those 12 steps, and I remember looking at those 12 steps, and I said, I can whip them out in 30 minutes. No No big deal. And I left that meeting that night knowing full well that I would never go back. And had it not been for God putting Regina in an office where I worked, and she was working there with my sister and my nieces and me, and every time I'd go, I'd go in there and I'd talk to Regina, and Regina would sit down and one more time she would share with me what you all had shared with her, and she made me promise her that I would go for six weeks, and so I kept my promise and I kept going. And all those people down there asked me to do was be open-minded and be willing to be teachable. And I'm going to tell you all something right now. I did not walk in there, the trashy-looking woman I had looked at eight years I've Ran with every kind of trash there was in the country. but I, And I thought I had cleaned myself up. But what I did go in there with was a heart that was blacker than coal. I went in there driven by fear. I went in there so full of self-pity, self resentment, self-seeking attitude, not thinking there was a thing in the world wrong with me. Just tell me how to straighten out that kid and that man. And that's all I wanted out of those people. And that little girl and that little boy of mine took me by the hand and took me to Ufa, Oklahoma, Rick, where you talk. And they took me to my first conference in October 1987, and a woman stood up at a podium like this, and her name was Sudram out of California. And Sue Drum said, I remember two things Sue Drum said, and she said, you've got to learn to say you could be right and you must take recovery at home because that's where you got sick. If there's no recovery in that home, there's no recovery. And I know that's the truth today. If there's no recovery in your home, you can go set in a meeting from now till forever and you can sit in a chicken house from now till forever and that don't make you a chicken and sitting in a meeting don't sitting in a meeting don't give you recovery that recovery has got to come in your heart and you must take it at home that's where recovery is it's how you act on the street and how you act and that's what they taught me that's what they taught And I went home, and I knew good and well it wouldn't take Carl long. He'd vex me. I knew he would. And sure enough, he did. Old Carl sat down, and he said something. And right away, I was vexed. And I looked square dab at Carl, and I said, you know what, Carl? You could be right. And poor old Carl, his face fell about right here. (laughs) And I got up off my, I went down the hall and got out on my knees in that bathroom, and I started praying. And this is how I prayed, Lord, shut my mouth. Now, prior to that, I'd have went down there, and I'd have prayed all right, and I'd have prayed like this. Now, Lord, you shut old Carl's mouth, and I'll go out there and tell him what it is I know you want me to tell him, because I knew that was my job. And so, but I began to pray different, I began to see things different, and things began to happen. It says right up here, we've made a decision, and I made a decision to throw in with you all. Thank God I did. And I'm going to tell you something, my husband thanks God for it every day, because <laughs> <laughs> and so do my kids. But I'm going to tell you what I made that decision that I'd throw in with you. And, and, and my pick struck gold, just like it says in that family afterwards. Because it talks about that old man that went out there and he mined for that goal. And the more he mined, the more he got. And the more he got, the more he gave away. And the more he gave away, the more he got. And on and on and on it goes. And that's what happens to us when we get in this program. And we come in here and we dig in and we try to do what we're asked to do. And then I got myself a sponsor. And my sponsor was Ramona. I got to walk with Ramona for three years, and I'm going to tell you all something about Ramona. Ramona came into this program when there wasn't a whole bunch of Al-Anon literature. And Ramona gave to me what was given to her, and what was given to her was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 and 12 of AA. And Ramona told me just what Mary Pearl told Rick, you got to read all that Al-Anon literature and you've got to read this too, and we're going to do your steps according to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're going to get on your knees every day and you're going to say that third step prayer. And you're going to read page 67 and 68 or whatever in the world it is. And you're going to tell you how to start your day out and how to end your day. And that's how you're going to live your life, June. And this is what you do. And that's what we do. And in my group I go to, we're a big book group. We study the big group on Tuesday night. We do not study the big group in our meeting. We stick strictly to the conference approved literature. We don't do anything wrong. But we've got some good recovery in our group. And we study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hope to God I don't make any of y'all mad, but that's the way I got my recovery, and thank God for it. And I had to get up and get that book, and I had to go back, and you know what I had to do? I had to scratch their name out. And I had to put my name in there. I had to scratch their names out, and I had to write June in there where it said, in full flight from reality or else mentally defective. And when it talked about lack of power is my dilemma... And the director of the play that Marianne talked about last night, that was me. It was my way or the wrong way. And I had to go in there and I had to read that book and I had to become a student of that book. And I wouldn't take anything in the world for it and the Alan Long literature that we have today. We are so blessed that we have all this stuff. We have all this stuff for recovery and thank God for it. And so I began to walk this walk and walk this journey, but I didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. And I come home from meeting one night. On a Tuesday night, and there sat Pat's car in my driveway. And I walked in that house, and there sat my husband and that boy. And the tears was absolutely streaming down my husband, a broken man. And that boy was sitting there with him, that boy that he had run off so many times. And he was sitting there, and he was telling his daddy. He was helping his daddy. And I said, what happened? And, and Carl, and Mike was up there in Tulsa by this time just running amok, laying on the just all crazy. And Carl said to me, June, I don't know what to do. I had to call Pat to come home and help me. I don't know what to do. And you know what? The Lord let me see it before I walked went to bed that night. I looked back and I saw what I had done to that man. I saw that I had stripped a man of every fiber of dignity that he had. I had told him what to say, when to say it, how to think it, what not to think. I had done all this. I didn't have any luck at it, but I had kept myself busy doing it. I had done all that stuff, stripping that man of dignity, blaming that man when there was no measure of blame. And I didn't know there was a person in that house that was hurting besides me. And I was on my knees every morning. Say that third-step prayer, Lord, relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do your will. Take away my difficulties, Lord, that victory over them may bear witness to those that I might serve of your power and of your love. And I didn't know that man was hurting. I hadn't took time to look long enough to know that he was hurting, that this disease of alcoholism had entered his life and was killing him just like it was killing the rest of us. And that boy was laying up there. And I decided I'd go to Tulsa the next day and I and all the way up there my mind was spinning and I'd do this and I'd do that. And by the grace of God, God sent me a man out of Alcoholics Anonymous sober some 13 or 14 years that had no business being where I was, but he showed up and he sat with me that day and he prayed with me and he talked to me and I was able to leave Tulsa and leave my boy one more time in the hands of a loving God and you people. My boy wound up down in Dallas. And he went down there and sometimes he'd sober up. And he, he got down there, and he had the very best opportunities in the world. He had David A. and Gracie. He had John and Patsy. John and Patsy, they even hired him to work for them one time. And I'm going to tell you what Mike used to say to me. He'd say to me, there isn't anybody in the world that knows how to work with a wet drunk like John A. And John did. He tried. He loved my boy enough that the day came that he had to look him square up in the face. And he had to say to him, if you want to kill yourself, you're going to have to go ahead. But I ain't going to watch you any longer, Mike. I'm not going to enable you by giving you a job any longer, Mike. You're going to have to go on and do it. John loved my boy that much, and he was able to do that. And and I knew they were praying, and I knew people everywhere I went were praying for my boy. And the phone would ring, and it would be some doctor or somebody down there in Dallas. And they'd be saying, we've got him up here in a lockup, or we've got him in a psych ward, or we've got him in jail, or whatever. And when I would hang up the phone, and Carl would look at me and say, what was that? I didn't have to look at Carl anymore and say nothing. I would say, it's Mike, Carl. And we don't know what to do. What should we ought to do? And my husband, I never forget the first time it happened, and he looked at me and he said, maybe, June, you ought to call your sponsor. That's Billy. Maybe you ought to call Billy, and maybe you ought to call Regina and Pat. Maybe we ought to talk to think about it. So we pray about it, and we talk about it, and we stay prayed up, <laughs> but we never know when the next shoes gonna fall. And sometimes me and Regina would get in the car, and we, we went one time and got him and took him down in Arkansas and put him in a place for low-bottom drunks, but he'd come out and he drank again. And over and over and over it went. And my boy w- finally wound up in the streets of Tulsa, laying in the streets of Tulsa, literally laying in the streets of Tulsa drunk. And I'd been with y'all a long time. And God would send me out places like this from time to time. I never intended to do this. And Lord, I know it's evident by listening to my country talk. Now, I'm not capable of doing this. And I, and, and I didn't ever ever dream of doing this and i didn't want to do this i wanted to stay home i just wanted to stay home and i was in a lot of physical pain and my heart was hurt my boy was laying up there sometimes he'd be in jail sometimes in the insane asylum sometimes on the street sometimes i didn't know where and i got on a plane and i went off up to a conference one night one weekend and i got up there and tom i was there and i loved tom i and lord i'd hurt him lots of times and before that weekend was over I heard Larry A. out of Louisville, Kentucky, and I heard Tom I, and I had the message of hope, and I knew why God had sent me to places like this, because of what I've already heard here this weekend, and what I'll hear before I leave, reinstores in me and gives me what I need to go home and face this deal one more day, see, I, give me the hope. God knew, left to my own devices, I would not go to enough meetings to hear this. And so he sends me places like this to people like you to hold me up one more time. And so I got to a place where, you know, I'd get a call and I'd know he was in jail. Or I'd know he was in the insane asylum where he stayed sometimes. Or I'd know he was in a mission. And you know, I never thought I'd see the day when I used to rare back and tell people about Farm Family of the Year, kid. I never thought I'd see the day that when I got that phone call that my boy was locked up somewhere, it was just like. He's safe tonight. He won't be hungry tomorrow. He won't be cold tonight. Yes, I was so glad that that's where he was one more time and he'd be safe. And the night came, it was one day at my office and I knew better. And he called me and he said, Mama, please come and get me. I drove downtown in Tulsa and I picked that boy up and we drove to an old parking lot there, an old vacant parking lot. And he sat there in that car, and I sat there in that car, and I looked at that boy, and I saw what the disease of alcoholism had done to him. This was my boy that used to walk around in three-piece suits, very he set. He was dirty. His clothes were full of holes. His hair was long, and he was hungry. And he didn't say anything and needed it all. The disease of alcoholism had both of us in its grips. It had, the disease of alcoholism will destroy and rob you of your joy of life. I looked at that boy and I saw the spirit was gone out of his face. His sister and his brother were so concerned about where he was. All of us. None of us could do anything. And I took him out to an old motel and I paid the rent for two nights and I laid 20 bucks on the table. And I got on the plane, and that's the weekend I went to hear Tom and Larry. And I came home knowing one more time that all I had to do was trust you and trust God and leave that boy alone. I couldn't fix him. And then it came a night in February. And he called me, and he said, Mama, please, I'm hungry and I'm cold. Come and get me. And I got in the car, and I drove out to the barn where my husband was. And I said, I'm going after that kid. I don't care what they say. It was like by that, at that moment, it was what God, what program, what book, what anything. I didn't believe anything. I wanted my boy. I wanted to go get that boy and bring him home and hold him and make him well. That's what I wanted to do. I'm a good al but I'm a mama first. And that's what I wanted to do. And I started the town and I started arguing with God. And when I started arguing with God, I know full well that I am in my will and out of his. And I started trying to convince God, just like it says in the big book, rationalize and justify what I was doing. I knew it was wrong, and I began to argue with God. And I made it about five miles down the road, and I pulled off, and I called my sponsor, and she wasn't there. But the Lord blessed me with a good black belt Alanon sponsor and a sponsor-in-law, I call him, her husband, who has been in this program 26, 27 years. And he answered that phone, and he said to me, June, you turn that car around, and you go on back home, and you leave that boy in the hands of a loving God. And he will be all right. And I said, but Bob, it's cold. And he said, he's real innovative. He'll find a warm spot. And before the night was out, he did. He found a warm spot. He stayed in a mission for several months after that. And then I began to do, and Ann talked about it last night, and I began to do what Mike had taught me to do back when he was preaching. I began to pray for the miracle. And I began to thank God for the miracle and thank him for the miracle just just as if I had watched it happen. Because I knew, somehow, Ramona would say to me, June, you pray for him to be delivered and he will be, either here or there. He will be delivered either on this earth or God will take him. And, he, and she said, you pray like that. And I began to pray like that, just like Marianne talked about when she talked about that letter she wrote to God. And I began to ask for the miracle and thank God for it. And tonight, I, today, I can tell you all that when I left home yesterday. My boy is back in the church and back with AA, and he's been sober since Christmas. And thank God I didn't have anything to do with it. It was you guys that did it. It was people like... (laughs) To the best of my knowledge, there's not a worn out for any of my kids' arrest. There's not nobody looking for them for anything they've done that's wrong. They're all sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous today, and it is in spite of me, not because of me, because I simply didn't have the power that God, the grace of God, and the power of this program is absolutely unbelievable. It's absolutely unbelievable. You know, today as I stand up here before you all, no matter what happens, no matter what happens, my cup is full. And I drank from the saucer on most days. Because I have been able to enjoy a weekend like this with a little girl that used to couldn't come around me. I've got a boy up in St. Louis that put himself through school and came, got his Ph.D. after he, not any money I gave him, he got it on his own. Regina went back to law school, not any money I gave her, she did it on her own. And Mike's where he is today. He's living in the mission. He's working in the mission. He's going in the jails and he's talking to people. Not anything I did but what you all did for him because you all didn't turn loose because there was people like John that that was willing to work with a wet drunk. There was people like you all that are willing to work with a wet drunk. My little book that I carry around with me says he has delivered my soul in peace from the battles that were against me. And there were many and that kind of tells my story and I believe with all my heart that some 2,000 years ago when that man stood up on that mountain and laid down that set of principles by which we could live one with another in fellowship with each other that it strongly resembles the 12 steps and I don't think that's an accident see I believe with all my heart that we are walking in a program that was divinely inspired I believe those 12 steps are divinely inspired. I mean, you think about it. Bill Wilson sat down and wrote 12 steps. He had to be divinely inspired. Think of the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people that walk in a new light because of those 12 steps, that set of principles that he was given. Oh no. Don't tell me it wasn't divinely inspired. I know better. I know what the grace of God is in this program. I know the power of prayer in this program. There's people like Ellie and some girls here I met some three or four years ago that committed themselves to pray for my boy. People all over the United States where I go. I know the power of prayer works. Don't ever tell me it doesn't. Now, it may not work out exactly like I want it, but there's an answer, and it'll come if you just wait. If you just wait. Me and Carl were sweethearts again. We're going to be married that 41 years in August. Carl don't run out in the road and run his kids off no more. He's he's tickled when he sees them coming. And we're tickled when we see them going. (laughs) (laughs) Bunch of them come home at Christmas time. Mike was one of them and Regina. And they got down there and got iced in our place. And they was there for a blooming week. And I thought I'd die before that week was up. I was proud to have them home, but I was sure glad to see them taillights go down. I mean, I began to arrange rides to get them out of that bottom to get them home, but all that ice on the ground. Well let me close my story this one little way. I I like to say that uh, Carl, I told you a while ago, he rode horses for a living, trained cutting horses for a living, and I was what was called the turnback help. Now the turn-back help sets out in front of the cutter. And and you take an awful lot of verbal abuse if you're his wife. I really got sick and tired of that. And uh, so I decided I wanted to go to cuttings and show a horse like Carl did. So Carl bought me this mare. And she was a, a really good mare. And there uh, wasn't nothing wrong with her. And and I had the boots and the shafts and the spurs and the hat and the wranglers, Had the whole nine yards, saddle, everything. And then Carl sent me off to the old master an old man named Mr. Pat Patterson lived in Tecumseh, Oklahoma. He'd won that award many times. That said he was cutting horse man of the year. Old man was gruff and mean, but he sent me over there with that old man, and I stayed with him week after week after week. And that old man worked with me patiently, patiently, patiently. And I'd fall off, and he'd help me dust up, and he'd get me back on, and he'd tell me one more time. And the day arrived when I could go show my mare for the first time. And I'm going to tell you all right now, I was scared to death. That's a scary thing. And I was literally terrified. Went to Shawnee, Oklahoma's first show I ever went to. And I got to that cutting and rode in that arena, and my old teacher was there. Mr. Pat showed up. And Mr. Pat rode up beside me, and at the cutting, there's these two men that sit out in front, and that's the turn back help. And on either side of you sets a man, and that's the herd holder. Herd holder sets over here and keeps the herd from swarming out on you once you got your cow cut. And they talk to you. And Mr. Pat and Carl wrote up to me, and Mr. Pat said to me, Now, June, you don't need to be afraid. You can ride that mare really good. Now, here's what I want you to do. You scrooge way down in there on your pockets. You take a deep seat, and you get hold that horn, and you relax. You put that mare's head down, and you let her work, and don't try to help her. You trust that mare, and don't try to help her. And now, if you will just listen, he said, I'll be in this corner, and Carl's going to be in that corner, and we're going to talk you through this. And I was talking one time, and that thought came to my head, and I thought, you know, that's the story in a nutshell. My God says to me, June, I have given you the very best set of tools there is, and that's all these books we have, and these tapes we have, and these places like this. And I have sent you to the masters, and that's you all. That's you people that stood up last night with the long-term sobriety and the long ears and all Anon my teachers, the ones that walk before me. I have sent you to the master's, June. And here's what you need to do. You just go in there today and you take a deep seat and you relax and don't try to help me. You. you just listen, June, and trust me and I'm going to talk you through it. And oh, Lord, he talks me through it every day. And he'll talk you through it too. But it's kind of like Rick was talking about this morning. You've got to invite him in. You've got to invite him in because if there's one thing that my God gave to me and to you, it was the free will to decide. And see, I had to go a long time and leave a big swath of damage behind me before I learned that I don't have the right to impose my will on a single, solitary soul. Not my kid, not my husband, not anybody. All I have to do is be responsible for myself to my God who comes in And I ask him and talks me through it. And he'll talk you through it too. But you gotta ask him. Thank y'all.